All right, well, this is week seven. Um, we're continuing on through the covenants. So I will pray and we will get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for another day, another day where your mercies are new. We thank you for your righteousness, for your holiness, for the character that you have expressed to us in your Son, Christ. We ask that you will bless our time, bless our service today as we commune with the saints and worship you on your holy mountain. We ask this all in the name of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, so we've been talking about, or last week we talked about Adam's created work, um, what he was charged to do. So he was charged to work the garden, uh, to multiply, have children, and then to guard the garden. And in doing so, he was expanding the kingdom of God. So that was really Adam's charge, was to expand the kingdom of God. And an interesting point is that work was not a result of the fall. So work, just like the institution of marriage, preceded any fall into sin. So we obviously chagrin work very much, and we, we associate work with, oh, since the fall we have to work now. And it's like, well, no, actually Adam was working before that. What we experience as a result of the fall is corruption and difficulty in work. So uh, the thorns and thistles, so to speak, are the result of the fall. So when we work and we labor and things don't work out well for us, that is a result of the fall. Adam, not that he couldn't fail uh, as far as um, you know, planting or gardening, uh, but it seems to be in the narrative that there was it was fruitful. Everything he did was fruitful. Um, whereas now we know that we have to deal with droughts and uh, diseases and crops and animals and on and on and on. And so that is a result of the fall. But work in its most basic sense is not. And that's actually what we will be doing uh, for all eternity. The, the idea that we have in our modern American culture of just sitting on a cloud and playing a harp all day in heaven uh, is grossly, uh, you know, misunderstood. So the answer of what we will be doing for eternity is we will be glorifying God by working and tending his new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And now I don't know what that will necessarily look like, um, but the point is that work is an, an integral part to God's created order. Okay. Now, now we come to the fall itself. Uh, original sin or the sin of man. Now, interestingly enough, from a perspective of uh, defending the faith and apologetics and um, you know trying to convince people of the worthiness of Scripture, of the, of the accuracy of Scripture, the fall, that is man's depravity, uh, his corruption, is one of those areas that you pretty much don't have to do any work to convince people. Like if you go out and ask non-believers, is there a problem with the world? They will say yes, and most of them will answer that it, the problem originates in man. So in some sense, they are adhering to a, a, a proto-Christian or biblical worldview. Because they understand, they look around and they go, yeah, something's off here. Something seems to be broken in humanity. Why haven't we figured it out by now? This is the whole 
progressive utopia that they think humanity should be able to progress and evolve to where we get past our differences, we get past our moral failings, and we sort of live in this utopian society. That is assuming that man isn't corrupt, but in order to get there, obviously there is also an assumption that we are in fact corrupted. So proving that mankind is fallen <clears throat> is almost unanimously presupposed uh, from culture to culture and throughout history. So that's not the hard part as far as uh, convincing people of that. It's convincing people of how and why that is the case. That's where the difficulty comes in. So, um, and the other, and moving on from that, um, if we look at the fall, the nature of it, I mentioned last week the term pedagogical, and I want to kind of go through that again a little bit. So there is a tendency in mainstream evangelical doctrine to say that what happened at the fall was a mere uh, illumination of right and wrong, of good and evil. So Adam and Eve ate of the tree, and then they understood sin. They understood right and wrong. They understood it in its most basic sense. And from that, coupled with that, there is also the explanation that God created uh, pure, morally free agents who then could choose him or not choose him. Jerry, do you have a question? That says pedagogical. It means teaching. Can you write it down? No. We'll talk about it. <laughs> um, yeah, this idea that if you were God, you would want to create something that could choose you or not choose you. That's a simple explanation. People say, oh, okay, God created a morally free agent, agents that could choose him or deny him. And so the idea there is that the most loving thing that, a, that God could do is create something that would either love him or not love him. Okay. Well, that obviously places a huge emphasis on man's ability to choose. And so it makes a difficulty when we say, okay, Adam and Eve chose, they made their decision, but then why then, if it is about their decision purely, and it rested on their decision alone, why is it that I am judged because of their decision? So it does create an issue with the, uh, the, uh, the weight and why we are guilty because of Adam and Eve's sin. Um, so that is not a strictly biblical position. I can argue all day long where positions like that actually come from. Uh, in the 18th and 17th century secular philosophy, um, I may or may not have uh, emptied a few classrooms at Northwest University over that issue, um, where the teachers said, okay, everyone else can leave because we're not going to answer this question in front of the whole class. Um, but that's a, that's a story for another time. Um, but this goes into, this, this raises another question, or a larger question, about the sovereign plan of God. Was the fall a part of God's sovereign will? And we would say, as good reform types, we would say, of course it is. God 
Nothing that happens is taking God by surprise. So the fall was clearly a part, an integral part, a design part of God's will for humanity, God's will for creation. So in this sense, it doesn't become, or the, the tree isn't any longer um, simply a discovery of right and wrong. Rather, it becomes a pedagogical test. That is, this is a teaching moment for Adam and Eve. And what the tree actually becomes is the ultimate sign of good and evil. So we'd ask, why is it called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And that's because the tree was the archetypal test of good and evil. It was good and evil embodied. And in that way, it was embodied is by either being obedient. I can never spell obedient, so please forgive me if it's spelling. Felonies. Yeah. Obedient or disobedience. So good and evil are therefore categorized as either obeying God or disobeying God. So good is obeying God and evil is disobeying God. And in fact, as Christians, we would define these two terms ethically as the highest form of good and the highest form of evil. So this gets into a, a larger discussion about ethics and Christian ethics. We would say obedience to God is good. That is what we mean by some, when something is good, it glorifies God. It is obeying God's commands. And when something is evil, we would say it's evil because it's going against what God has decreed. It's disobeying God's commands. So this is a Christian view of ethics. This is what's known as, as Christian deontology, that God has given us commands to obey, and whether or not we obey them is determining what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. So if God says murder is evil, obeying him and not murdering is good. Disobeying his command of thou shall not murder is evil. And that is a strict, objective, external law. Now, our modern society certainly does not define good and evil based on the laws of God, but also they define evil more, good and evil, more on a sliding scale. A sliding scale. And we're very used to hearing this, because obviously in today, in our 2022, things that are quite blatantly evil are now somehow propped up as good, you know, uh, mutilating young children for the sake of some progressive agenda is somehow seen as a morally righteous and morally good behavior. But for the most part, good and evil uh, are understood in degrees or levels of good and evil. So this is different from deontology. So the, the, the phrase deontology in ethics is uh, regarding 
right and wrong as objective categories. Okay, so right and wrong are objective categories according to a deontological point of view. The opposite of deontological, which there's actually a few, but is essentially some type of consequentialism. So um, I've actually mentioned this a couple times in the pulpit uh, regarding what happened during COVID, the beginning of COVID. Um, the nice thing about being formally trained in philosophy is that when someone comes out and says something, whether it's a politician or when there's some law that's put forward or some new rule or something like that, I am able to go back and actually trace in history where similar things like that have taken place. And then also, I can, uh, through different terminology like deontology or consequentialism, you can actually narrow down and isolate precisely from a philosophical standpoint what that type of reasoning is called. So what that type of reasoning is called with, uh, with these terms. The interesting thing is that during COVID, our governor and uh, Biden and uh, that whole side took and adopted a type of consequentialism. And it's actually called, I'm going to get on my philosophical high horse here. Hedonistic act consequentialism. So consequentialism essentially says good and evil are come in degrees and the consequences of behaviors, the consequences of actions, is what determines whether that thing is good or evil, right and wrong. So if it, if it leads, if the consequence of an action is pleasure, is um, the is essentially the increase of pleasure and the decrease of pain, then what you'd say is that act is good. If the consequences of an action or consequences of a behavior, the consequences of the act, are uh, create pain or create suffering or create some sort of loss or uh, degradation, we would consider that thing evil. And these come in various degrees. Obviously, if you, uh, if you stub your toe that creates a, a, a level of pain. And that is wrong in the sense of consequentialism, but it's not wrong in the sense that, I don't know, but, you know, murdering hundreds of people is wrong. Okay, so they would, they would say good and evil is uh, in, on that sort of sliding scale. So you have consequentialism that says right and wrong is determined by the consequences of a behavior. That's where act, so this is our actions promote consequences. So morality is determined by the consequences. Hedonistic comes in because hedonism is essentially the pursuit of pleasure and the downplaying or the removal of pain. So what they did at the beginning of COVID, and most progressive liberals live in this world, this is how they act. Why is transgender, transgenderism, or whatever, they, whatever it's called, uh, why do they view it as morally acceptable or morally right? Well, they would view it because the consequences of it is someone is feeling better about themselves. 
And it comes down to, why is that matter? Because pleasure and pain are really all that matter. Pleasure and pain are the driving factors. Whatever action we take that leads to consequences that increase pleasure and reduce pain, that's how we live. And that's precisely what we did at the beginning of COVID because we're going to say, all right, how do we increase, or rather, how do we decrease the pain of people dying? A few people, just a few. How do we decrease that? Whatever act will lead to that consequence of reducing pain is morally acceptable. So whatever act reduces this pain is morally acceptable. We'll lock everybody in their house and ruin the economy and violate people's rights because the goal is reducing pain. See how that happened? That was the goal. They're, in their mind, they were trying to save people's lives so no, and that justified them doing whatever they wanted. Because we were all standing around like, well, hold on a second, are there more important things than people? I mean, sounds strange, but a few people might die from this disease. Why do I have to give up all of my rights, stop going to church, X, Y, Z, all these, aren't these things equally as important? And they said, no, 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 no. There's pain happening, which is, wasn't really happening, but we can get into that later. Uh, there's perceived pain happening. And so we need to perform whatever act will result in the reduction of that pain. So I was like, right from the get-go, I was like, this is hedonistic act of consequentialism. And most people were like, okay, what language was that? Nobody, right? I told a couple family members this, and they, they could have cared less, because, you know, oh, whatever, right? But the point is, this is an inherently contradictory worldview. You can't hold this position very long and you start running into problems because it's purely subjective. Well, what do you mean, pleasure and pain? My pleasure and pain are theirs. So this is the whole thing. We, we subjected 90% of the population to uh, isolation. We subjected our kids to isolation over the vague promise of reducing the pain of who? People who are already terminally ill? It's like, this is madness, right? So, but, oh, oh that's probably enough. <laughs> so, if you want to know what happened during COVID, hedonistic act consequences, and that's what it's about. I've been waiting for someone to bring it up, but obviously they won't. <laughs> Why would we want to call it what it actually is? Okay, so getting back to that, the converse for us, good and evil isn't defined by what makes us feel good or feel pain. That's not how we define good and evil. Good and evil is defined by God himself. And this goes back to our earlier classes about the transcendental method and the whole idea that God, uh, not only does he transcend all of creation, all of humanity, but he is the source, he's the transcendent source of knowledge and truth and beauty and right and wrong. So he determines what is good. He determines what is evil. So we can see that against things like consequentialism, we hold to a worldview where morality, right and wrong, good and evil, comes from an external transcendent, more, you know, transcendent source. So an external transcendent source, we, we know him to be the Father. God the Father is the source of 
right and wrong. So God determines the most fundamental status for mankind. That is, we are either obedient or disobedient. So good and evil now are defined as either obedience to God's will or disobedience. So to get back to the tree, this is precisely what happened with Adam and Eve, is they were confronted with that archetypal choice. Are you going to obey God or disobey God? Because some, uh, some theologians and commentators have, have remarked that the tree does seem to be a bit of an arbitrary choice. Why was it a tree? Why was it the fruit from the tree? And this sort of thing. And that's what has led them to this conclusion, that the focus isn't to be put on, okay, what type of fruit was it? What did this fruit taste like? As though there was some sort of mystical quality in the flesh of the fruit of the tree and, and things like that, but rather that this was a test from God on whether or not they would be purely obedient versus disobedient. And what do we find is that because of God's character, God demands perfect obedience. This is, we, we learn this from the Old Testament. Why was the Old Testament law insufficient for creating the type of righteousness in mankind that satisfied the wrath of God? Well, it's because God's demand for holiness is the same as his own holiness. So we would say God's character, the Bible, the best word to define God's character is the word holy. That's why we call it the Holy Bible. And so on. So the best term to define God is holy. It's not good. It's not righteous. I mean, he is good. He is righteous. But biblically speaking, the best word we can use... Go ahead. No, it's fine. Um, this is why in the Old Testament, uh, God is called Holy, Holy, Holy. So the Trace Hagion. All caps. Holy, Holy. That's a capital O. The Trace Hagion. And in Hebrew, when you repeated a word three times, you were putting as much emphasis on it as you possibly could. There was no other, there weren't exclamation points in Hebrew. So if they wanted to put an exclamation point on a word or a phrase or, or a concept, they would repeat it three times. So when they say God is holy, 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 they are stating in their understanding, he is the highest degree of holiness that mankind can conceive and in fact he transcends that because our conception of holiness does not do justice for what God actually is for his holiness so that leads to the question God demands holiness as he is holy Adam and Eve failed to render unto God that type of holiness in turn so now they are going to live in a world which they are depraved and corrupted. How then do we get back to this holiness? How then do we get back to this holiness? Well, this is why God institutes the sacrificial system for Adam and Eve. Now, before I get to the sacrificial, sacrificial system, I do want to make a mention on um, uh, total depravity 
and what is also known as oh, as uh, the lights went off. radical corruption, huh? Baby fingers, yes. So, um, in Reformed theology, the discussion of the fall uh, elicits the discussion of total depravity. So, in Calvinism, you have the acronym TULIP, and the first one stands for total <coughs> depravity. Now, we need to unpack this a little bit, because this phrase can make it sense like, or make it sound like, if man is totally depraved, he can't do anything but error. And we've heard this, you may have heard this in life, is that man is, uh, or to be human is to error, rather. In other words, no one's perfect. But to be human is to err. Well, there's a problem with that, if that is in fact the case, that this is what's meant by the fall, is that no matter what we do, we err. Well, then Scripture's error, because if all man ever does is err, then Scripture's wrong. The problem with that is if, a man, if all of the things that man does is error, then this statement is erred, which is a contradiction. So obviously... For us to reason properly, it's the total depravity doesn't mean that man always makes mistakes. Because that's a contradiction. So we'd say, it doesn't mean that man always makes mistakes. Total depravity and or radical corruption are in regard to our ability to obey God and our ability to satisfy the requirements of God. Does that make sense? So we're not talking about making mistakes or erring. We're talking about obedience versus disobedience to God. God demands perfect holiness, perfect obedience. We are depraved in being able to render that to Him. Adam, before the fall, had the capacity to render perfect obedience to God because he only had one test. If he had passed that test, he would have rendered under God the type of obedience that was required of him. Now that we live under the fall, we are depraved in our ability to render that type of holiness to God. So that's what we mean by total depravity or radical corruption. Is that man is corrupted in his ability to perfectly obey God. Because you will hear this from non-believers who will say things like, well, Wait a minute, I'm, I'm not a Christian, but I can still, I still do good things. Right? Or, you know, you take the modern sentiment that if you, they still do this. They'll go and they'll poll thousands of Christians and they'll ask them the question, are, are people basically good? And that's a sentiment in our world today. Yes, people are basically good. And if you, if you understand good and evil in the sense of being able to create good food or being able to create a beautiful painting, then yes. Mankind is basically good because we're able to create beautiful things. We're able to create pleasurable things. We're able to do things like that. But good and evil, again, aren't determined from a Christian's perspective. They aren't determined on the result or the consequences of an action. Getting back to that. What are good and evil determined by? 
our obedience or disobedience to God. So this is why we would say as Christians, people are not basically good. Because goodness and, and badness, goodness and evilness, are determined in light of obedience to God. No one is fully obedient to God. No one has satisfied. No one is righteous. No, not one. Right? That phrase from Scripture. So that is our Christian understanding opposed to the world's understanding. So God's holiness demands holiness in order to enter his presence. Now, um, when Adam and Eve fell, they found themselves in a radically different set of circumstances. They immediately try to cover themselves and with, with tree, with, you know, leaves and things like that, they hide from the presence of God because they're fully, now they're aware of their depravity. They're aware that they have disobeyed God. They're aware of the consequences that are coming to them. And they deserved sudden, instant, and immediate death, to, to quote uh, one of Jerry and Eddie's favorite movie, Robin Hood. Right? Prince John says, sudden immediate and or instant and immediate death, right? That is what Adam and Eve warranted from their behavior. But God shows them mercy, not just arbitrarily like, okay, just kidding. I'm not going to kill you now. What does he do? He has to, and this is the institution of the sacrificial system. He places his judgment on something else, and that is an animal. So that is the institution of the sacrificial system. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, here is the institution of the sacrificial system. And the Lord, this is after the fall, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of, garments of skins and clothed them. So the question is, where did he get these skins from? Some people have you know, erroneously thought, oh, Adam and Eve were like spiritual beings before that. So God created skin for them. It's like, no, that's not what's going on. He killed an animal and took the skin from the animal and put it on Adam and Eve to what? To cover their nakedness. So their nakedness was their shame, or in other words, their sin, their sinful state. So God, uh, uh, God provides a sacrifice to cover that sin, to cover that shame. However, as we know, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was not atoning for man's sin. It wasn't satisfying the wrath of God. Instead, it was delaying it. So the Old Testament sacrificial system was not sufficient for satisfying God's judgment. It was merely delaying God's full judgment. This is why they had to continually offer sacrifices year in and year out. So restitution or full payment of the debt of sin was still owed. And that, of course, is the, uh, that's the repetitive theme of the covenants going forward. That there is disobedience, there's breaking of covenant. God shows mercy, provides for Israel the means to offer sacrifices to cover their sins temporarily. But the, as we read the Old Testament, we see this pattern happen over and over and over again. And we're drawn to the natural conclusion, when will this full payment be made? When will full restoration, full atonement for mankind's fallenness, for their sin, when will that be made? 
and that is the promise of the Messiah. In the Old Testament, they understood there will come, a, come one who will offer sacrifices that will please God, that will uh, fulfill the righteous requirements of God, and therefore lead Israel into what they call perfect freedom. Now, uh, obviously, we're going to get to that in later classes, uh, the new covenant. And that is precisely what Christ does. Is he, he fulfills the righteous requirements of God's law. Uh, but a few things, now that we are in the post-fall period, um, I want to read, yeah, we'll, we'll go through a few things here. So, after the fall, Adam still maintains his place as the leader and father of all humanity. So he is still in charge of, he's, he's ejected from the garden, but he's still charged with working the land, with having children, and subduing the earth. So those cultural mandates that I talked about, those are still in place after the fall. So they weren't isolated just to Adam, which is why they're still in place for us. Even in Christ, we are given the cultural mandate, just as Adam was, to go into the earth, to subdue it, and to uh, be fruitful and multiply. So to extend and to continue the work of building God's kingdom. That's still a charge that is extended to us. Obviously, the circumstances for Adam's work have drastically changed. So death has entered through sin. So in Romans 5.12, this is where Paul says that death entered or death reigned through sin. So now Adam and Eve have to deal with the corruption and the decay and the death of their bodies and of livestock and, and disease and famine. So the, the work of them building God's kingdom has gotten drastically more difficult. And secondly, and this is also very important from an um, eschatological standpoint, is that from the fall to the advent, or not the advent of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ. So from the fall of Adam and Eve to the resurrection of Christ, that is the period in which Satan has dominion over the earth. So Paul calls him, uh, um, or not Paul, in John, sorry. In the Gospel of John, when Satan says, all the world, all the nations of the world are under my dominion, Christ doesn't say, no, that's not true. Right? So there's, a, there's an understanding in Scripture that from the fall to the resurrection of Christ, Satan is ruling and reigning over the nations. And that's important because for him to be overthrown through the work of Christ, Christ uh, crushed the head of the serpent. So now Christ is ruling and reigning, whereas Satan is no longer the, the prince of this age. So that was an important note, that from the fall, Satan was given dominion. And incidentally, Satan didn't take dominion from God. Satan took dominion from man. So Adam had been given dominion, had been given rule of the earth. And because Adam sinned, because Adam listened to the lies of the devil, he listened to the lies of the serpent, he subjugated himself to the serpent. So, he, so the serpent supplanted or took rule over from Adam. So Satan never took the rule from God. He took the rule from mankind. Okay. And then Christ comes as, uh, on behalf of mankind, as man, and does what? Takes it back. So this is where we can see the fullness of um, 
the incarnation. There's a lot more going, a lot more going on than just merely Christ. Uh, I don't want to say this lightly, but Christ. The, the central focus is yes, Christ is atoning for the, the sins of mankind on behalf of man. So he's satisfying the wrath of God because he is God. He's atoning for the sins of man because he's man. But he's also taking back the kingdom from Satan, from the serpent. So this way, he's the last Adam. So he's in place of Adam, taking the keys of the kingdom back from Satan and simultaneously offering sacrifice that pleases and satisfies the wrath of God. So we can see the, the picture of the incarnation is incredibly, incredibly important and incredibly rich. The scroll in Revelation, the title deed to the earth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, precisely. Yeah, we, we have a tendency to kind of make all of, everything that happens in scripture purely like ethereal and just, um, just spiritual. It's like, no, no, there's actually a lot of, a lot more things that are happening that are physical. These have physical ramifications. Um, again, we, we mentioned it earlier, uh, Leaf, that the, the tendency at the beginning, Adam and Adam's charge to work the land preceded the fall. So work, work is not something that's a result of the fall. So in heaven, we will work. And I talked about how... Uh, we have this, in our culture, we think of heaven as floating up in the clouds, and we're like a ghostly figure. You see this in, like, cartoons, right? So Wiley Coyote gets run over, and his little spirit comes up and is playing the harp or whatever. That's the modern conception of we're just going to sit on clouds all day and just float around. It's like, no, no. In eternity, in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to work the ground. We're going to work God's creation. We're going to keep it and tend it. Um, I really do love uh, the great divorce from uh, Lewis. That, I think that's a, a wonderful uh, gift of, a, of, an, of an imagery of how um, the figure, he goes to the heavenly realm and the sun is so bright that he doesn't even cast a shadow. It's just piercing through it because he doesn't belong there. And what I gather from that is the heavenly realm is far more real than this earth. So the new heavens and the new earth will, be, will seem far more real than this does, somehow. This will feel like the dream, I think. I think that's what it'll be more like. I'll be like, man, that, wasn't, that stuff wasn't solid at all. This is, what, this is what water actually is. This is what a tree actually feels like. That sort of thing. All right. Yes, yeah, so we are moving forward, and as we see, this is the first instance of how God is beginning to restore man back into covenant. So what we see is that Adam and Eve uh, shared in the presence of God. They experienced the presence of God. They were given access to God's presence in the garden. They disobey God. They commit evil at the highest degree because they disobey God. They are expelled from God's presence. And the story of history after that, the story of salvation after that, is God now, uh, God pursuing man and bringing his presence back to man. And that is what we experience now as Christians, the fullness of that. We are ourselves little tabernacles, little temples, where God's spirit 
Now we don't have to go to a mountain or go to a garden or go to a building to experience God's presence and God's spirit. God comes to us and dwells in us. So we see that tracking as we go throughout the Old Testament. Very good. Any questions? Thank you.